If you want to look up the, the reading in the Pew Bibles while everyone's moving out here, well, not everyone's moving out, hopefully, uh, Colossians chapter 3, and it's on page 1184 in the Pew Bibles. David will be speaking to us about the passage from uh, verse 18 of chapter 3 to verse 1 of chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 17 as well, just to get you into the, the feeling of the, of, of the passage. This is what it says. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. If I had uh, time this morning, I'd love to have begun by showing you a clip from one of my favorite movies. I, I was horrified when I realized it was 1989, so some of you are going to feel very old here. It's the movie Dead Poet Society, featuring Robin Williams as a rather unorthodox English literature teacher. Near the beginning of the film, there's a great scene where he begins his first class by getting the students to rip out the introduction from their poetry anthology. Most of the students are quite reluctant to do this, of course, and at one point he, say, he says, go ahead, it's not the Bible, you won't go to hell for doing this. Well, I'm not going to ask you to rip out pages from your Bibles, you'll be glad to hear, even if at first glance you wish you could or think you should. What about these statements on the screen? Wives, submit to your husbands. Slaves, obey your masters. I am, however, going to ask you, if not to rip out, certainly to ignore something, and that is the heading in the Pew Bibles at this point. Rules for Christian households. Ignore it. That's not the Bible either. It's the work of the editors. Ignore it. It makes it sound legalistic. It robs a passage of its real meaning and connection with what went before. Instead, fitting in with how, Chris, how Christoph tackled the uh, passage immediately before this, I want to take, uh, title this section, Living the Resurrection at Home and at Work. Living the Resurrection at Home and at Work. Now, how is that going to help us? Well, let me say a couple of things first. When we come across something in the Bible that we find difficult, challenging, contradictory, or even offensive, we do well to ask a couple of questions. Firstly, have I understood the text 
or the context correctly? And secondly, is God challenging my preconceived ideas in some way? Because, you see, if we don't ask those questions, we're going to be tempted to approach these texts in two equally wrong ways. Either we will blindly interpret the words literally without paying any attention to the gap between when they were written and where we are today, or, on the other hand, we'll just do a Robin Williams and we'll rip them out of our Bibles altogether. In that case, the Bible loses its authority, and we decide what to accept and what to reject simply on the basis of how we're feeling, the cultural analysis, or our own opinions. It's important to remember also that these verses this morning from Colossians are not isolated. You actually get similar instructions, sometimes identical instructions in Ephesians, in Titus, in Peter. They were common in the letters to the church throughout the first century world. So how do we apply them properly today? Well, let's firstly look at the social context. And let me take you on a journey. A journey into the house of an upper middle class or wealthy citizen of the Roman Empire in the first century. It's as far from a modern nuclear family in a semi-detached house in East Belfast as you could probably get. It's more of a compound. And if you were a man, this household would have contained you and your parents and your children and your PA and your business manager and domestic staff and all of their families, all living together in the same compound. The lines between home and work were pretty blurred. Then there's the spiritual context. This letter is addressed to Christians, and the Christian gospel had already started to make waves in the towns and cities of the empire. Christians, especially Christian women and Christian slaves, were experiencing in the gospel a newfound freedom. So before we start reacting to what might appear to be reactionary chauvinism here, we need to recognize that the gospel had proved to be a liberating message for women and slaves in this culture. And so the Roman authorities were actually beginning to accuse Christianity of encouraging anarchy, of fomenting social unrest. This gospel, they believed, could lead to a breakdown in family and the loss of social cohesion. You would have unbiddable wives, unruly children, rebellious slaves. Imagine Christianity being accused of threatening family values. This very ordered social structure of the household was under threat because suddenly women, children, slaves were finding a new dignity and a new value. And this leads us to the biblical context. Because the biblical message up until now has been how women were given a standing that the culture didn't give them. We see it in Jesus' dealings with the Samaritan woman, the Syrophoenician woman, the woman caught in adultery, the prostitute who anointed him. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. A woman was the first European convert. And the names of women are found throughout the letters. Even here in Colossians in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 15, refers to Nympha and the church that meets in her house, a phrase which almost certainly implies some degree of standing or leadership in that community. Add to that all the stuff that we have been looking at so far in the book. Just earlier in chapter 3, verse 11, 
Paul has written that as far as God is concerned, there is neither Gentile nor Jew, slave nor free. In the earlier letter to the Galatians, he says, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. So whatever these verses mean, they cannot contradict the message of the letter so far or the message of the New Testament so far. They cannot lead to suppression. Even more, these verses surely must have some relevance to the verses that occur immediately before this. Look back earlier in uh, chapter 3 and say, ask yourselves, where might it be most difficult to live out this message? Where might it be hardest to apply? Where might it be most challenging to live out these instructions? Verse 12, Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, and humility. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you. Verse 17, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Where is that going to be hardest? It's not accidental, surely, that he moves seamlessly in to what that means for a husband and wife, for a parent and a child, for a boss and his workers. Because we can be warriors for Christ in the public arena, but lose the battle in the privacy of our own home. And so the whole message of the book is tested out on how we live at home and at work. Well, enough about context. What about the three specific relationships that are mentioned? And this chart here might help us. And I've added a simple title that applies to all six parties and that might act as an important filter on each of them. And the title is this, It's Not All About You. Firstly, marriage. Wives submit, husbands love. A few things to remember here. First of all, Paul is often falsely accused of telling wives to obey their husbands. That's not Paul. That's the old Anglican marriage vows. In the chart that we had, it was children and slaves obey. Here it is, submit yourselves. And in the Christian vocabulary, submission is something we are all called to do to each other. If you look back at the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, you might find it helpful, especially later, look back at Ephesians 5. Verses 21 and 22 say, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands which is an application of the first command, submit to each other. Now a wee bit of grammar. Stay awake at the back there. If you've done French, you'll know that there are active and passive and reflexive verbs. So, you know, I hit Gareth, that's active. Gareth, I am hit by Gareth, that is passive. I hit myself, that's reflexive. Well, in Greek, the equivalent is the middle voice. Do something to yourself. Wash yourself. Hide yourself. Dress yourself. The middle voice does the same thing. And this is in the middle voice. It's asking wives not to submit because they have no choice, but as an act of Christian humility to submit themselves. End of grammar lesson, but it's a grammar lesson with a theological significance because in the culture they had no choice. They were the property of their husbands, but now they're Christians 
And Paul is dignifying them by addressing them directly, something no legal document document would ever do. And he's saying, you have a new status, a new freedom now, but nevertheless, because it's not all about you, you should submit yourselves, not to your husband's tyranny, but to your husband's love. And you do that because it is fitting in the Lord. It is an appropriate mark of Christian discipleship. And it is inextricably linked to what is demanded of the husband's. Which brings us to the next bit. Because it may seem that even having said all of that, the wives still get the bad end of the deal. But, guys, if you think yours is the easy part, you haven't begun to understand what's going on here. You haven't even started. Love, you see, was never featured as grounds for marriage in the first century. There were exceptions, but This opinion of Soranus was much more common. He wrote, Since women are married for the sake of bearing children and heirs and not for pleasure and enjoyment, it's totally absurd to inquire about the quality or rank of the family line or about the abundance of their wealth, but not to inquire about their ability to conceive children. A common epitaph for a wife, which was meant to be complimentary, stated, She never gave me any reason to complain. Could almost have been written by an Irishman, couldn't it? Josephus wrote, The woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be obedient that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. Now, the New Testament sees things radically differently. In the Ephesian passage, a longer version of this one, there are three verses addressed to women, one to the fathers, one to the masters. Do you know how many are addressed to the husbands? Nine. Nine verses. It only took three verses to explain submission to wives. It took nine verses to make sure husbands, who are obviously a bit slower in the uptake, how do they understand the phrase, love your wives? And as one professor of mine said, he had too much trouble working out the implication of his nine verses to be too worried about how his wife was working out her three. So I'm using the Ephesians passage here to explain the simple Colossians command. And the summary of the Ephesians passage says, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wow. It's not all about you. The wife is submitting to this sort of love, Christ love where the man forgoes his desires and ambitions, his cultural legal rights, and even his very life, as Christ did. And as Christ wants the church to grow in godliness and flourish and be what it was created to be, so a husband's main job is to see his wife grow in godliness, flourish, and be what God has created her to be. I remember being given a a test case at college once, It was designed to show how oppressive and abusive these verses could be. It was about a husband, an aspiring doctor, who was offered a job in a different city, which would give him loads of promotion opportunities. His wife was a head of department in a local school and tipped to become head of school within a couple of years. Moving would mean her giving up her job with no immediate prospect of re-employment in the new city. She would be away from her parents and above all from her church and small group, which was a spiritual lifeline for her, especially with her husband working long shifts in the hospital. In this test case, 
It mentioned the various pieces of advice they got from different people as to whether or not he should take the job. And one was from the people in the church who told her that it was her duty to submit and go wherever her husband went. Now, I remember being riled by this for two reasons. One, the leaders of the discussion never gave any alternative answer. All you were left with was stalemate. There didn't seem to be a mechanism for making a decision except that the church people were very bad. But secondly, that is a caricature and a completely wrong application of these verses. It's the diametric opposite of what these verses are actually teaching. If the husband was understanding these verses, he wouldn't even countenance moving to a better job in a new city if it was going to have a detrimental spiritual and emotional effect on his wife, leaving her stifled and even embittered. And that's not how Christ loves the church. And it makes me angry. That's, that, that's how people outside the church understand these verses. And they do that because that's how some people inside the church have applied them. The role of the husband is to think first of his wife and what will make her flourish. And the wife's job is not to force her husband to be a social climber, but to submit to his love for her. It's not all about you. And there's also a clear and complementary synergy going on here, isn't there? Because a husband who loves like this, selflessly and sacrificially, is probably not difficult to submit to. And a wife who exhibits godly humility and submission is not difficult to love. Now, I've probably spent most of my time on this one because it's the most controversial, but actually it's only two verses. But I think if you understand this, you get the other two. The relationship of wives and husbands is murdered by children and parents, slaves and masters, with the harder, more countercultural task being given to those in power. Parents and masters are warned about not abusing their power by provoking or driving their children or slaves away from God by being unnecessarily harsh. It's not all about you, parents. It's about what your children will become. Of course, there are those who make up their own minds and wander from the faith, and you leave that with God. All you can do is nurture them and make sure you don't drive them away by being unnecessarily harsh. Sometimes parents with a prodigal child or two will say to me, where did we go wrong? Well, it's likely that you never went wrong. Didn't go wrong anywhere. Children in God's eyes, like women and like slaves, have the dignity to choose for themselves. And some of them choose poorly. It's more likely that the parents who have driven them away through harshness don't even ask that question, but stubbornly persevere in their fractious relationship with their kids. And kids, I mentioned that this was an intergenerational household. So the instructions here are also aimed at adult children. How you treat your parents as an adult is also a sign of the kingdom. The New Testament has no concept of, now I'm 18, I can do what I like. Similarly, masters, it's not all about you. Because you too have a master that you will be accountable to. It's interesting that in Colossians, most of the verses are addressed to the slaves. And this is probably because there were two members in the Colossian church. One was called Philemon, and the other one was called Onesimus a master and a former runaway slave. And if you read the book of Philemon in the New Testament, you get their story. 
It's about how Christian masters and slaves should relate to each other in Christ. It was a hot issue in Colossae. Now, the differences between employer-employee relationships today and masters and slaves in the first century are so vast, it's probably a little dangerous to make exact comparisons. But I think there are a couple of things we can transfer. We need to recognize, first of all, that there was a massive diversity in how slaves were treated. This is not like the 19th century abduction of African slaves. It's a much more global institution of labor. At its best, the relationship was a lot better than any employee-employer relationship today, with the trusted slave almost becoming an adopted member of the master's family, like a a live-in nanny. Um, at at, At its worst, it was horrible certainly would not have been concerned with the HR protocols or even the Geneva Convention. Masters who beat their slaves to death. The other thing to remember is that Paul was not endorsing the social institution of slavery. In fact, the Christian gospel so subtly undermined the institution that within a couple of hundred years, Roman slavery, as it was known, became unsustainable and disappeared. Getting the big picture here helps us to understand how it was Christians who were at the forefront of abolishing slavery in the 19th century, and it's Christians still at the forefront of agitating for its abolition in parts of the world today. Because suddenly what you had with the gospel was you had Christian slaves not rebelling but working with a different attitude. Suddenly you had Christian masters not oppressing or beating, but giving their slaves rights and privileges and good conditions. Every other social code of the period, the employer's handbook of the day, if you like, was about how to get the best out of your slave, usually advocating a good beating now and then. But this passage and others in the New Testament introduced the concept of slaves' rights, the right to justice and fairness. It's concerned with adopting a whole radical new relationship of solidarity between slaves and masters. And so in this longest section, Paul tells us to avoid two things, deception and ulterior motives. We don't work just when the boss is around, and we don't work hard just to get promotion. Those are old nature motivations. The new nature practice is when the powerful use their power for the benefit of others, and the others don't abuse that leniency and grace, but work all the harder. It's not about you. And so in each of these three relationships, do you notice some common threads? On the left-hand side, you had the powerless. On the right-hand side, the powerful. On the left-hand side were only obligations, duties, no rights. All the rights, legal and cultural, were on the right-hand side. The weight was with the powerful. No other social codes for households even bothered addressing wives, children, or slaves at all. There was no point. They had no rights. And in the case of slaves, it was believed they had no intelligence. Why address them? You might as well, as one writer said, talk to a beast or a piece of farm machinery. And against that backdrop... Can we see now how radical the gospel is? It treats the powerless with dignity as moral people given a choice, but those choices also had implications. 
They had a responsibility to use their choices wisely. They could use their Christian freedom to turn from being oppressed into the oppressor. They could use it as an excuse to stand on their own rights, or they could use it to adorn the gospel by how they live out their newfound faith in the service of others. And so you see, suddenly there is a perfect equilibrium created. Instead of obligations on one side and rights on the other, you have everybody with rights and obligations. Wives, children, slaves are given the right to choose how they live, the right to be loved, the right to be nurtured and given fair treatment. And most incredibly in verse 24, an inheritance. No slave got an inheritance. But here Paul reminds them that they have actually got an inheritance greater than the firstborn son of the house because it's an inheritance from the Lord. And then husbands, fathers, masters don't just have rights, but they have obligations to be selfless and sacrificial and encouraging and just. But most importantly, above everything else that's been said so far, there's one more thing that unites, and it's absolutely crucial. Look at how often the phrase, in the Lord, appears. Verse 18, 20, 22, 23, 24. It isn't about telling wives, children, and slaves not to upset the social order, don't make waves, don't rock the boat. This is about what's consistent with a Christian life, and the life in the Lord is about a life of submission and respect and humility and obedience and service, and that begins at home. Nor is it about masters and fathers and husbands just being nice because you get good results that way. It's about being the gracious master because God has been a gracious master to you. It's about being the type of father that God has been to you. It's about being the type of husband that Jesus has been to you, one of his church. It's about modeling the Trinity in this dance of love, submission, obedience, and justice. This whole passage is about how we live it out in the Lord. Living the resurrection at home and at work. And folks, if we put all our relationships under the microscope of what is fitting in the Lord, that will challenge and renew all of our relationships. So what are we going to take away? In terms of work, no matter how menial or unfulfilling our jobs may appear, we learn from Paul's words to slaves that it can all be done in a way that honors the Lord. In terms of the church, the line between church and home was really blurred because churches met in households. If the head of the house was a Christian, the whole household was baptized and were counted in the church. And so these instructions weren't just about home life, but churches were made up of several of these households, and so it's about relationships within the church as well. All this about selfless love and submission and obedience and justice and service applies here. And marriage. Well, I thought it inappropriate for me just to stand here and give the man's view on all of this. I thought it would be important for you to hear Gwen as well. And for us to say just a little about how we have struggled with some of this and how some of it has benefited us, and, and what it looks like. 
And she's not just here because I told her to be here. Just, you know. <laughs> if you know Gwen, that's definitely not the case. Uh, so Gwen, what are, what are some of the things that God has, I guess, taught you in this whole area over the years? Well, in our house, it's definitely uh, starts with non-traditional roles. We have roles by gifting. So I look after the finance, the cars, the toolbox. We share driving. We see that quite differently in other families. Um, for Monty, he took on the ironing with the football, which annoys everybody, of course, but that was after 17 years of having no TV. He thought that was a good way to use his football watching time. Uh, I Monty, suggested that. Yeah, Monty, he did, he did. Monty's the one with some, with the, the wordsmith, some of the more artistic gifts and a romantic strain that most Northern Irish men don't have, it has to be said. He's the one with filter control because I'm not so good with that. And also with the patience to deal with the technical issues when my patience runs out on that. Um, early on in our, in our time together, it was looking at something very important uh, to us as something we felt quite called to, a mutual decision on choosing to be childless and checking in on that and looking at it theologically and stuff. So that's uh, something that was uh, quite a major thing, very different to most, to most couples, most families. Um, but looking at it, as I said, the theologically, getting advice from others who, um, particularly when we went over to Regent, to look at that. Um, what about, you know, even life choices and where we go and yes, career? Yes, and... um, certainly my involvement and beyond in major decisions, um, the decision to go into ministry, to study abroad, to move country. We've lived in five jurisdictions. That takes a fair bit of, bit of organising from the organising half of the family. Um, so those are were all major decisions and there's been ones along the way that we obviously chose, chose not to do. So my, my feelings about them, my uh, thoughts about them were always very much part of it. And um, although some of them seemed like good possibilities and adventures that we then didn't do, others seemed like adventures and possibilities that we have been so thankful for um, along the way. I mean, we're not standing up here as the perfect couple oh. because we've struggled with this as well in, in some cases, haven't we? One of the other things I was going to say is the whole idea of flourishing, and certainly Monty's encouraged me to try and to push me past maybe my lack of goals or lack of ambition at times and push me outside my comfort zone so that I could flourish and, and still um, often encourages me in the fact that I've ended up with a, a business that just has to have my name on it because I'm so unique or peculiar. Um, and that's fun. But other, in other ways, we, we chose not to perpetuate family models of conflict. Um, we sort of, I, I joke that we had all our rows before we got together, before we even got engaged, when we were friends. Um, but rather than models of conflict from our families, where in one case there was too much, in one case there was too little, uh, but to work out something new for us and not to perpetuate that. I suppose one of the ways we've struggled... Um, is maybe in the spiritual head of the family. Maybe Monty say something on that. I mean, it's interesting. I suppose minister, because of ministry, and there may be parallels in your situation. In ministry, you know, I'd be coming home and I'd have been giving all day. You know, I'd been, been praying with people all day. I'd been counseling and talking about God with people all day. And the last thing I wanted to do when I went home would be to start having those conversations with Gwen or praying with Gwen. Uh, and that was just, you know, just really, really difficult. And it, it might be, I guess, maybe in some of your situations, if you're a teacher and you're, you know, you're given all your day to the other people's kids and then you really don't have time for your own, you can maybe identify a little bit with that. But the whole spiritual side of things, um, I knew, you know, I got to know really that Gwen was 
wanting input from me on that. In some respects, I was saying, you know, she's a perfectly mature Christian herself. She can, you know, feed herself. She can have her own walk with God. But I think I needed to know that she was looking for more from me on that. Uh, and because particularly of my, my vocation and my ministry, uh, I was failing because I was giving far too much to other people and not enough to her. Yeah, and while I think um, I've always had, uh, from a very early stage of giving my life over to God and that submission to Christ, I've had, found it easy to deal with the big issues in life and the big choices or um, uh, that kind of thing. Sometimes I'm really not good at the, the day-to-day disciplines of, of Christian living, and that would be an issue um, that I probably would have preferred more for, for Monty to be involved with that and to keep me more... Um, more, not, uh, you know, more, more in the practice of that. Um, and I think too, you know, and again, I think this probably is transferable in a lot of situations when you come in, uh, you know, from work or you have a day off, you know, you've spent yourself so much with other people that we used to say, let's, in our case, it was a Monday. We used to have a Monday off and Gwen used to hate it because I was so knackered after Sunday and uh, she, would, she would get the butt end of whatever I had. So she felt shortchanged in that but all along, I was always mindful that it's a big ask for him to love me as Christ loved, loved the church, you know. So uh, I think it's so important, uh, the whole issue of, of submission, that we, we listen again to what it says in the scriptures and that it's an essential part of our discipleship. I remember some years back in a former church, somebody saying to me, Jesus is my savior, but he's not my Lord. And that broke my heart. I was quite shocked, quite surprised by it. And if we can't submit to Christ as our Savior for all that he's done to us, to our incredibly loving and powerful Father God, we need to be in the practice of submitting, mutual submission, as the passage in Ephesians says, and submission in our relationships, particularly our home ones. Okay. So just to finish, I think if you've read these words in Colossians and felt angry, can I suggest you haven't really understood them? On the other hand, if you've read those words in the passage earlier on and you felt smug, can I respectively suggest you've completely missed the point? From the world of first century, which was a power-based society, to 21st century Western liberal democracy, which has become a rights-based society, Colossians offers us a radical third way, the kingdom alternative. Folks might scoff at this and write it off as still too patriarchal or idealistic, but what are we going to replace it with? With all the emphasis on rights and equality, how is the modern Western world doing in terms of security and stability of family life? How is that looking? Marriage breakdown has soared. Child unhappiness is epidemic, according to recent reports. Teenage suicide, domestic abuse, even allowing for the fact that it wasn't reported as much in the past, given that only a minority are still reported domestic abuse, is still at a frighteningly high level. What's the answer? I firmly believe that here we could have a most unexpected but powerful advertisement for the gospel. Just as it was in the first century when a small, despised group of people who were misunderstood and persecuted 
just began living and relating in a different way at home and in society, so that the oppressive power structures of that culture were totally undermined, and other people began to look into their homes and say, that's what I want for my marriage. That's what I want for my family. And the culture was transformed. So too, the equally oppressive, narcissistic, self-centered, rights and entitlements-based culture of today, with its illusions of freedom and equality, will be undermined when people like us live out the gospel in our homes and workplaces. And people look in and see relationships of mutual submission, love, obedience, encouragement, hard work, and justice, those revolutionary kingdom acts. And they look in and they say, that's what I want. Let's pray.